All right, my friends, I want to take just a moment of your time right now to extend a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say about joining me once a month live? And what would you say if you could do this from the comfort of your own home, your car, or your office? It's not just about joining me, but also about joining hundreds of other like-minded, live-inspired community members. And my friends, that is what I'm extending to you today, the invitation to join us in the Live Inspired in-studio with John O'Leary community. It's where we come together once a month for this exclusive webcast. We take pause. We focus on what is most important to you. We overcome challenges that affect you, and we ensure that you have tools to live into your best life, both personally and professionally. Registration for in-studio only happens a couple times each year, and here's a secret. Come on, lean in toward the speaker. It's happening soon. It's coming this May. Don't miss the opportunity to hold your spot right now. I want you to be one of the very first to know when in-studio registration opens. So go right now and learn a little bit more about InStudio by joining me at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I'm going to say that again, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I'd like you to go to that link right now, learn a little bit more about what InStudio really is, how it's going to elevate your life and why you ought to uh, learn when the waitlist becomes the opportunity to join us live and in living color. So one final time, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I can't wait for you to join me there in this exclusive community. I'm looking forward to doing life together with you. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck, and welcome, my friends, to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. A question for you on the front side of today's conversation. Here it is. What's your favorite children's book? Come on. What's your favorite children's book? Perhaps it's one that you love to read to your kids or maybe to your nephews and nieces. Maybe it's one that was read to you while growing up. We all probably have a few titles that jump to mind. Maybe Goodnight Moon or Where the Wild Things Are, The Giving Tree, Charlotte's Web, Green Eggs and Ham, Corduroy. There's a countless list that we can draw from. But for me and for our family of six growing up, one of our favorites read to me almost nightly was Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And apparently I'm not alone because this little book has sold millions and millions of copies. The author of it and many, many others is Judith Biorst. Judith is a New York Times bestselling author many times over. She's written numerous books for children and adults. Listen to this though. She's also written four musicals and a range of poetry collections, including her decade series. We'll talk about that today. It began with It's Hard to Be Hip, Over 30. And then most recently, she wrote Nearing 90, 
So there's quite a few years in between those two titles. Today, we have the distinct honor of spending some time with a mother, with a wife, with a questioner, with a noticer, with a sojourner, an author, a poet, and an ever youthful child. She's also a literary icon. It is Judith Viorst. Judith, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm I'm so overcome by that introduction. I just want you to do it over again. Here we go. Well, thank you, Joe Buck, and welcome, my friends, to the Live Inspired Podcast. We're doing this one again for Judith. <laughs> Judith, you deserve more than that, but I figure rather than me telling your story and talking about your accolades, we'll let you do it through your own experiences and through your own memories and recollections of it. Okay, you ask the questions. I'll try to figure out some answers. Beautiful. You grew up in New Jersey. I want to make sure I'm getting my facts right. Is that accurate? Yes, I I, I not only grew up in New Jersey, but though I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 60 years, I still have my New Jersey accent. (laughs) Well, don't lose it. It seems to be very becoming on you. You started writing at a very young age. What age were you? Well, I started writing when, I think literally when I was seven and eight years old. And uh, I copied everything I wrote down with a sharp number two pencil on my notebook paper. And I would stick them. They were always poems. in an envelope and put the address of my mother's women's magazines on it, never to be heard from again. (laughs) Was mom or a neighbor or your father, was someone encouraging you to do this or was that just the way you were as a child? No, I I think quite the opposite because every poem I wrote, (laughs) uh, you know, somebody died in it. Uh, uh, The first poem I wrote was an ode to my dead mother and father, which I'm dying to recite. (laughs) <laughs> which is written, written at the age of eight. May so, I do that? You made, and just for a little context on this, uh, for those of you wiping your tears thinking, oh, poor Judith grew up lonely. N- not at all. She composed this poem to her alive parents at the dining room table. So, uh, Judith, your very first poem is Ode <laughs> to My Dead Mother and Father, and we look forward to you reciting it today. And here goes. I wonder how the angels look and what they do and say. They took my mom and daddy and carried them away. They took them up the golden stairs far away from me. I wonder if ever again my parents I will see. Well, of course, I was seeing them. They were right there, and they were not amused or enchanted (laughs) with my my poem at all. I thought it was very morbid. My my mother said, well, you know, what what is this? I said, well, I want to be a writer. She said, well, I should go want to be Shirley Temple yes. and go, go roller skate or something wholesome like that and uh, made them very nervous. What was it about poetry that you found so attractive? What was it about writing that you loved so much? Well, I felt that I had all of these thoughts in my head and all these feelings inside of me and that this was the best way I knew to get them out. I didn't sing, I didn't dance, I didn't paint, but I had words. And um, poetry just felt like a natural second language to me. The trouble was that every poem I wrote for years, um, there was dead family, dead child, dead dog, dead soldier. And it took me a, a very long time to figure out, you know, why am I doing this? I wasn't a particularly morbid little girl. Mm-hmm. And I figured out finally, it took me a long time, that 
My mother's favorite poem. Remember the poem Annabelle Lee? Mm-hmm. By the sep- oh, yeah, beautiful maiden in the sepulcher down by the sea. Yes. Anyway, I think I concluded that a poem wasn't a poem unless it had a corpse in it. Because you weren't morbid, you just were okay writing about it. I was just I just wanted to write poetry, and I thought there had to be a dead body and and, and a poem for it to count as poetry. Well, and what twenty five short years after you began writing about the dead bodies, uh, you become an overnight success. Uh, <laughs> well, it, I I wrote in every in every vein for every publication to no avail until I was, I started out when I was seven and eight and I didn't get anything published until I was in my thirties, not one word. And I wrote, um, you know, I, 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 I wrote a lot of poems about death and I wrote, um, science fiction. I had a job working as a secretary for a, uh, fashion magazine. I wrote a fashion story that wasn't published. Mm -hmm. I had a job working for a confessions magazine. I wrote a true confession story that wasn't published. I was also a secretary. I I was was a children's book editor uh, before I got married to Milton, and I wrote a children's book, which also wasn't published. Mm. So I I had quite an impressive record. Well, and I've read, and maybe it's not accurate, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you were so bad in science that you're the only student ever to be issued two frogs for biology. Is there any truth to this? It was absolute truth. It was my zoology class, freshman year of college. I was issued a second frog. <laughs> but I got, away with, I got away with murder. I mean, I took courses in high school, and um, and... Every every course where I couldn't do the work, I wrote poetry instead. So I had to take an art course, and I and I wrote poems about driftwood. I took a science course, and I wrote poems about the solar system. And um, uh, the teachers thought that was very original of me to be writing uh, poems instead of writing actually mm-hmm. about what I'd been assigned. Well, it's odd because this lack of knowledge in some regards that you have around zoology and science comes back to be your very first opportunity to be published in a big way. Well, that was, that was, that was really, you have really been doing your homework, sir. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a yes. big fan and we're, we're delighted to share your wow. story and your work. I'm very impressed. I, I got a job uh, when I got married to Milton and we I moved to Washington, D.C. I got a job in an organization called Science Service. And um, one day, the person who was supposed to be writing um, a book on the NASA space program announced that he couldn't do it, and they said, we want you to do it. And um, I came home weeping and wailing to Milton, and I said, you know, they want me to write a book about space, and I don't even know where it is. And Milton, like a true journalist, said, say yes, and then we'll figure out where space is. And so I did. I wrote, and I wound up writing four or five science books um, and they were accurate science books because, you know, Washington is full of people that you can bring your work to and have it checked out. I had, I had a large segment of NASA going over my book on the space program right. and at, at one time, not anymore, if you wanted to know the difference between solid propellant and liquid propellant fueled rockets, I could have answered. You were the one. Well, uh, that's above my pay grade I, right there. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't last very long. Um, 
by the time I had children, um, and they said, Mom, Mom, you've written a science book about electricity. What's electricity? And I said, it's a beautiful thing, darling. <laughs> you you learned an expression, and I think it's a really a, a tenant for life. Uh, say yes, and we'll figure it out. Milton taught you that when you got this first opportunity. Do you feel as if you've kind of been living that for the last few decades following? Um. There, I've been living it. I'm, I'm, I'm not a bold person, but I really wanted to write, so I've been nervously living. <laughs> yes, yes. I've been, I've taken on things, you know, uh, that uh, seemed sort of challenging, maybe impossible, but when given the opportunity, I, I, I usually said yes. You know, it's nervously, worrying a lot. Milton is not only one of the main characters in your work, at least today, uh, but certainly one of the main characters in your life. What what was it originally about this young man that attracted you to him? He was very cute yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and very and very smart. We we actually we met when we were teenagers. He was uh, nineteen, I was eighteen, and we were waiter and waitress at adjoining hotels in the summer at the Jersey Shore. We both went to Rutgers and um, and we dated for a little bit in the summer, then decided that we were going to become intellectual buddies. Mm-hmm. You know, none of this romantic stuff. So, you know, for a while I would have answered that he was cute and I also liked his, his mind and we would meet for coffee and discuss deep, deep subjects. And we both went off into our own lives for many years. And met again at the end of our 20s. Well, you, you met again, and it seems serendipitous. You uh, you eventually shift gears from this high-flutant world of science into a very different world of children's books. How did that come to be? Well, before, that, before I got to the children's books, um, I started writing funny poems. Um, my theory being that you can't survive marriage without humor. And um, so instead of death and desire crumpled in a corner, I was writing about um, dirty laundry and uh, and uh, Gerber strained bananas in my hair. And I got, I, I, I got a bunch of my poems published in New York Magazine. Then I got a book published. And then um, a children's book publisher came to me and said, do you want to write children's books? And I said, do I ever? Because I had worked for three years at a mm-hmm. children's book place, not getting anything published as usual. So the, the poems actually preceded the children's books and um, were great. I love, I, even before I had children, I always adored children's books as, a, as, a, as an adult. That was a big thrill for me. That's actually one of the questions I have noted here. Why do you think that not only children love children's books, but it seems even for those of us who don't have kids or our kids have far kind of grown out of the house, it's still very popular with adults to read children's books. Why is it, why is it so popular? Well, I, I do think, think that you know, some parts of us never, never vanish forever if we're lucky. I guess some parts we'd be glad to get rid of, but I think the uh, capacity for childlike wonder, some kind of little six-year-old kid, um, lives inside a lot of us, even as we get to be a middle-aged person. And I think uh, that 
a middle-aged person harbors this child, and this child responds to the beauty and wonder of children's books, even if they're middle-aged. You know, and Judith, part of what attracts me so much to your work and candidly to you is that inner child, that little six-year-old girl from New Jersey is alive and well in the lady that I'm on this podcast with right now. And as you near 90, your inner child is uh, far from suffocating, but maybe uh, as playful as ever. Any, well, I, I hope so. I believe it to be true. Any, any advice for those of us, whether we are already in our teens, we're no longer kids, or we are nearing 90 on how we can remain as uh, as playful as you have? Well, I think it's I think it's something I think it's something that you you cultivate. I mean, I I I if I I don't just walk by a uh, a mother with a little kid or a mother pushing a carriage. I I notice them. I say hello to them. I say great beret <laughs> or I love your socks. And you know, I'm sort of they are paying attention. I I as a matter of fact, uh, I I think being there and paying attention is a very good rule for a lot of things right. in life. Well, you were being there and you were paying attention when uh, your family went through its own little loss. And I, I forget which one of your kids, but they were really struggling with the loss of an animal in your family and with the concern around what happens when we die. And so you wrote a little book. It's one of my favorites, actually, that you've written for kids called The 10th Good Thing About Barney. Remind our listeners uh, what the tenth good thing about Barney is actually about. Well, uh, let me give you a little background on that. I um, had a long talk with our oldest son, who uh, I don't know how old he was at the time, six, seven, and he said, um, uh, "Mommy, am I am I going to die?" And I said, in my brisk, no nonsense, mommy voice. Everybody died, but not for a very, very long time. And he said, do I really have to die? I said, honey, everybody dies, but not for a really, really long time. And he said, mommy, I don't want to die. And I, in my lowest moment as a mother, said, maybe they'll invent something. And then I decided I better write a book about <laughs> for Help them me deal and, with this. How about for me, too? For right. For me and my son. And so I wrote The Tenth Good Thing About Barney. And um, it's a, it's about a kid who's very devastated about the death of a cat. And he's asked by uh, his, his parents to think of all the good things about him. You know, that he was, he was handsome, he was nice, he purred. And um, he could only think of nine. And then towards the end of the book, he's helping his father grow, plant seeds. And his father explains that when that Barney, who is buried in the ground, will help these seeds grow into flowers. So that what I was saying to this kid and to all kids and to myself is that um, memory and the continuity of nature are our great consolations when somebody we love or something we love dies. You name every individual in that book, the mother, the father, I think he's got a little sibling and a neighbor. They're all part of it. The animal's part of it, the little cat. You don't name the child though. You don't name the, the central character. Was I'm assuming this is on purpose, but tell me why. Um, because he's telling, he's telling the story. And he's the I, and I think um, anybody can step in 
and be that I. I think that's awesome. You wrote a little book that seemed to get a little bit of traction. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. What's the genesis for that book? <laughs> well, um, I have an actual Alexander, and he's got a brother, Nick, and a brother, Anthony. He's the youngest. And Alexander always had many more than his share of bad days. He was, he, I don't know, a lot of things happened to Alexander. So I thought I'd write him this book to cheer him up, and I read it to him in manuscript form before it was published. And when I got finished beaming proudly at him, he said he hated the book. He absolutely hated the book. I said, what's going on here? He said, why are you giving me this bad day? Why don't you give it to Tony? Why don't you give it to Nick? Why am I getting this bad day? I hate this book. So I said, okay, well, look, uh, we don't have to uh, call it Alexander the Terrible Horrible. We could call it Walter and the Terrible Horrible or Fred and the Terrible Horrible. But then in my most manipulative mommy way, I said, but of course, and your name won't be in great big letters in the front of the book. So he looked at me. He went with it. He scowled mightily, and then he said, keep it Alexander. And that's how it got to be kept Alexander. And he has, he has come to be quite fond of the book. I'd imagine that just about every one of our listeners has read that or had it read to them. You published it in 1972. When did you begin to recognize that uh, this book would go beyond Alexander's own bookshelf? Well, it took me a while. First of all, my publisher, the publisher who had published my first two children's books, turned it down. I had to find another publisher for it. She didn't like the book. And um, I have to tell you that in uh, my very, very immature reaction to that is, yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. <laughs> but I, I, it did, it did get published finally, and I, um, I had no idea what what was going to happen with this book, and. Uh, I started getting letters from kids all over the place telling me about their terrible days. Well, you think you had a bad day? Wait till you hear about my day. And advice to Alexander, like punch a pillow or blame your brothers. And, you know, wonderful letters that I was supposed to pass on to him. Right. And and then the phrase, I'm having a terrible, horrible, don't get a very bad day, suddenly started appearing, mm -hmm. you know, in connection with all kinds of things. I now have a big fat folder of terrible horribles, and I just love it. I love it. You know, you seem, your central character in many of your children's books, you, you almost make them not unlikable, but um, difficult. They, they, they have, I, all, yeah. all of them have some bad days. They're kind of broken individuals. They're not the typical heroine. So t talk about that. I'm, I'm so glad you noticed that because that is so, so important to me. I, 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 I think of my characters as being what I call hard likes, hard likes. They're all, they always at the end are ultimately redeemable and likable, but not, but not easily. And, um, I think it's because when I was little, my favorite, you know, I wasn't this perfect person by any means. And, um, I love this book, the secret garden. I don't know if you ever read yeah. it when you were a kid, but there's, you know, there's a, there are, two characters in there, but the girl especially, she is so obnoxious. She is, and 
it was so consoling to not find all these wonderful saintly people in books all of a sudden, but, but you know, very flawed creatures. I remember reading one book where, very satirically, the perfect little girl next door was called Beautiful Vanilla. <laughs> Beautiful Vanilla. Yes. And I sort of felt as if I lived... And, and, and when I was growing up, there was this girl, Ethel Ann, and every, my, I was always being told, why can't you be more like Ethel Ann? She's, she's got such lovely manners. She's never, her hair is never out of place. Her shoes are never scuffed. So I, I, I went with a very imperfect people. I have four Alexander books, and then I have four Lulu books about a really obnoxious little girl named Lulu, um, who uh, is also, the little girls who read her tell me, um, you know, they like her. She's very spunky, but she is a serious pain in the butt. <laughs> Sounds like real life. Yeah, well, aren't we all sometimes? You know, you you write in so many genres, novels, musicals, poems, children's books, science, psychology. Why make it so hard on yourself? You know, most authors, Judith, they 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 pick a lane, whatever that lane is, they run in their lane. It's I think easier to write and brand and ultimately sell. And then along comes you, and it almost seems like you're continually busting out of the lane that they had you in before. Why Why do you do that? Oh, for the fun of it and the pleasure of it and the nervous tension of it and the excitement of it. I, I, I just love trying different things and using different muscles and, and, and stretching myself. Um, I can't I, I can't tell you how many people tell me don't do it when I wrote Necessary Losses, which was a <laughs> very heavily researched mm -hmm. book about the human condition. And everybody said, so why are you doing this? I mean, everybody loves your poetry and you've got this whole thing so nicely arranged. Just keep on doing that. Don't stick your neck out. But it, that's exactly, it was the scariness of it and the excitement of it. As I said, I'm, I don't think of myself as a very brave person, but maybe I am in writing because I was able I was able to want to do that and to do that. Well, let's talk about the bravery in writing. I, I think it's very easy for me to write a great long story about you, Judith. It's much harder to write about myself in an intimate way. And yet the majority of your works in some regards are yes, humorous, yes, poignant, they're honest, but they're almost autobiographical. You talk about being a mother. You talk about being a wife frequently. You talk about all these roles you have and all these individuals around you. Is it hard for you to honestly own these characters and then share them with the world? Well, I have very, I have very clear boundaries. Um, I, I love if, if I'm if I'm getting if I'm going to a party, a fancy party. I would like a dress that's like nobody else's dress at the party. But when I meet people, when I talk to people, I'm looking for all the ways we are the same mm -hmm. and connected and together. So sharing a lot of myself is the way you do that. And I mean, my favorite, I think my favorite fan letter of my entire life was a woman who wrote to me, um, I am a short, plump, blonde, <laughs> far woman from Iowa. And I think you are a tall, skinny Jewish woman from New York, and we live the same life. <laughs> I love that. I just love that. And yes, and, and in many ways we did and do. But I have also very, very strong zones of privacy that belong to me that are not on the page. It will never be. 
mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I, I'm not going splat out there. I'm, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm not a striptease artist. <laughs> do you write when you publish? Do you write to sell, or do you write from your heart? And if people want to buy, great. But you're an artist, and you're, uh, you're not all that worried about ultimately the sales side of it all. Well. I'm, I have I have been earning my living. My husband and I both earn our living as a writer. We don't have any trust funds or or rich parents, so we certainly wanted people to buy our stuff. But um, I've been lucky in that I've been able to write from my heart and from my from my interests. And um, when I wrote Necessary Losses, which turned out to be very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I I remember saying to my husband as when I put it in the mail, I said, when nobody reads this book and nobody likes this book, please remind me of the joy I had writing it and how proud I am mm. of it. But I I mean I was I had no idea how it was going to do. This was this was as are most of virtually all of the things I write. They are labors of love. I'm going to ask you a question that's completely unfair to answer, but you, I'd like you to answer it. I have four children. You have three. I won't make you tell me your favorite child, but I am going to ask you to share your favorite book, poem, article that you've written. So do, do, looking back on this illustrious career, <laughs> is there one that you look back and you're like, gosh, this was just a blast to write, to oh, create, yeah, to you, share? You, you really set yourself up on that one because... When people ask me that question, you know what I say? I said, that's like asking me who my favorite yeah, child well, that, is. I got it out of the way. Now you can't <laughs> respond I with that. I, and I, I said, you know, it, it depends on the day. Well, what about this day? About this day? Um, I mean, I suppose I would say necessary losses okay. in that I, everything, everything I had known learned, studied, and lived in my life went into that book. I spent three years writing it and um, uh, and wrote every single day, wrote that book every single day for three years. So uh, it was a book that I, I lived in mm-hmm. and lived with and, and that used as much of me as there was to give. Judith, for so how many today years? Today I'm picking that. I'm I picking think it's a great choice. Yeah, don't hold me to it tomorrow. For for how many years have you been married? It's going to be sixty next uh, January thirtieth. You know, so my I for my grandparents, I had more than a hundred years of them collectively married, and for my parents, who I just look up to so highly, they have been married now for more than fifty. And so when I read your poems about your life and about your marriage and about the relationships you share, the challenges and the joys of moving through them together. I'm I'm just connected to them. They really touch me. So I'm going to invite you if you're not if you're open to it to to share three different poems that came from one of your books. One of the poems is titled "Only Trying to Help." Uh, talk about the title, why you wrote this, and then if you don't mind, let's do a, let's do a read on the Live Inspired podcast. Well, you know what happens is when um, when when you when you when you give advice to a person whom you're married or to one of your children. <laughs> it's not advice that has been solicited. It's not advice that anybody is crazy about. <laughs> um, in fact, if you could please shut up and go in the other room now, honey, that would work out just right. 
So um, this is a poem about uh, trying to give advice and helping people out, like my husband, who was not exactly dying to hear about it. And um, all all these these poems in this book have little epigraphs under them. Mm -hmm. This one is from Gloria Steinem. It says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Here's my poem. I'm only trying to help when I observe that every tie that you wear has been stained by food you have failed to transport to your mouth from your plate. And you're only trying to help when you tell me I've gained, along with a lifetime of wisdom, a bit too much weight. And when I complain that I'm tired of having to shriek because you insist that a hearing aid won't help you hear, please know I mean well with each chastising word that I speak into your left and your only viable ear. And when you remind me of things I forgot to get done, like turning the eggs off and paying the telephone bill, and when I inform you of how many stop signs you've run, Let's try to remember our hearts are suffused with goodwill. With always the best of intentions, we've never refrained from our earnest attempts to constantly upgrade our mate. And though there are times when our marital bonds have been strained by our unerring talent to mutually irritate, we find comfort in knowing we're only trying to help. It's a poem we all can relate to, whether you've had roommates, colleagues at work, or someone that you've been partnered with for six months or for 60 years. Right. Uh, we are one of those characters, sometimes both. Nobody likes helpful hints. <laughs> no. Or helpful suggestions. Well, I really like that one. And the second one that I pulled was one titled Accustomed. Accustomed, yeah. It's a uh, love poem of a, of its own kind. <laughs> In addition to your face, I've grown accustomed to the cacophony of your snore and your bony knees pressing into the small of my back and your toenail clippings adorning our tiled bathroom floor and those crumbs in the kitchen revealing you just snuck a snack and me tripping over your always unputaway shoes and your desk, a nightmare, a criminal act, a disgrace. And your voice too loudly expressing your contrarian views and your face, your baggy eyes, beloved face. And the final poem, Judith, from from this line of work, uh, I'd love you to read the poem, Nice, and to also share with our audience why you wrote Nice. Nice. <laughs> well. <laughs> it's a beautiful little poem. Oh, well, this is this is about um, my and my husband's utter ineptitude with most of the uh, devices that characterize the 21st century and the famous people we never heard of, et cetera. Um, one cannot spend one's time in being modern when there are so many more important things to be. So instead of spending my time trying to be modern. I'm spending it with my husband. Mm -hmm. In a world where there are children named Buster and Apple, and nobody knows any Yettas anymore, it's nice to be married to someone the same age as I am. 
in a world where whenever we talk about folks who are famous, and I haven't a clue as to what they're famous for, it's nice to be married to someone as clueless as I am. In a world where regular people have personal trainers, and it takes a size zero to make a woman feel thin, it's nice that you are expanding as quickly as I am. In a world where bottled water is an accessory and plain old club soda preferred over something with gin, <laughs> it's nice you're as unabstemious as I am. In a world where everyone's vegan or vegetarian or else has a list a mile long of what they don't eat, it's nice that you're as omnivorous as I am. In a world where ritual is the new reality, and telephone booths are virtually obsolete. It's nice that you're every bit as unwired as I am. In a world where everyone's powering on and off, in a world where hacking doesn't refer to a cough, <laughs> in a world where nothing on earth is too arcane for Google to instantaneously explain, and tattoos aren't only for thugs, but for the elite. It's nice you're as 20th century as stubbornly 20th century, as hopelessly 20th century as I am. We are receiving live reads from the esteemed Judith Viorst. Judith, thank, thank you for writing that and thank you for sharing that. And you've, you've published <laughs> recently a new title called Nearing 90. It's part of your decade series. When you That's began right. this in your 30s, did, did you see it becoming a series or were you just writing about your 30s and then you were writing yeah, about your 40s? I, yeah, yeah, I was writing about my 30s and I was writing about my 40s and then suddenly there was a, a trend here <laughs> and, I, and I realized I was never going to be able to lie about my age again <laughs> unless I started counting backwards. So I went 30 all the way to 90s, I think seven, like seven books. I was, I'm still sort of shocked at the fact that that this has happened, but they uh, they overtook me, and there did seem to be something to say about every decade. Well, and I'm going to go through each of those decades, and what I'd like you to do is to share with us who might be living there or moving toward that, to share encouragement as we as we step through that decade. So the the very first one from that series is it's it's hard to be hip over thirty. What should we 30-year-olds keep in mind as we are dancing through that decade? Well, I think the big thing that happens in your 30s is the collision between expectation and reality. It's when most of us are in the early throes of marriage and, and parenthood. And our visions of the, you know, the, the filmy penoir at the breakfast table and the baby that we never got irritated at because... Of course they scream. That's their only way to communicate. Mm. And how our uh, unrumpled selves and our serene selves came crashing into the uh, realities of daily life. So it's making coming to some kind of terms with what you thought was going to be and what is actually happening. Well, I would imagine that's a continual trend through these decades. That, but talk, talk about your 40s. Uh, the the title of that one is called "How Did I Get to Be 40? Well, I'm I'm not going to be able to say anything too encouraging about the 40s. Because I thought the 40s, for me, was my hardest decade. I mean, you you live a life in which you feel basically um, 
open-ended. Like if I really wanted to go to medical school, I could go to medical school. I could run for senator. I could even, you know, if I really tried hard, could um, could become a ballerina, and and um, and and maybe I could run away with Leonard Cohen. Um, <laughs> but um, but then you start realizing in your forties that some things are never going to happen. Can never happen. And that no matter how crafty you are, you're probably going to die someday. And um, I, I, I wrote funny poems about this, and I used to talk about this. And what happened every time I said what I just said to you, some woman would come up to me from the audience afterwards, and she said, Honey, wait till you get to your 50s. It gets so much better. And she was right. She was right. Let's talk about that then. Forever 50 was the third in that series. Yes, and in, in the 50s, um, you've sort of calmed down with these realizations, which you struggle with. They don't go away. You know, you, you're going to struggle with the same things over and over again. But the, the, the shock of reality has pretty much sunk in for the first go around. And you start thinking not about all the stuff you can't do or you can't be, but uh, what you're good at, mm-hmm. what you have to give. What makes you feel comfortable in this world? You're not as self-centered as you used to be. You're not as self-pitying as you used to be. You're not as dumb as you used to be. <laughs> it's a very nice decade. Well, then you're so suddenly 60. So talk about suddenly 60, Judith. <laughs> 60, well, then, then, then just when you think you've got it all nailed down, um, you know, the 60s present you with a whole other set of issues because it's a social security time and all of a sudden you're a senior citizen you think, you know, what? what is this? Is, is, is all the good news of the early bird special and, <laughs> and getting senior discount rates? And you start sorting out um, the pleasures of the 60s, which tend to have a lot to do with grandchildren. Hmm. What about for those uh, who are reading the book right now? I am too young to be 70. Well, that one, um, I think, we again, you've worked, you've worked through Social Security and the and the joys of being a grandmother, and then you get a little grumpy again because in your seventies you really you know you really think this sounds old and I'm not old I don't feel old do people really think I'm old yeah <laughs> they do and get over it and, uh, then you are unexpectedly eighty yes and that that turned out to be a uh, that turned out to be nicer than than I unexpectedly expected, mm. um, and um, there's still a lot of pleasure to be uh, found in the world. And um, things start simmering down. Um, they really start simmering down when you get to be nearing ninety, but they begin to simmer down in the sense of, you know, you're not working as hard. Uh, I remember my mother coming to visit me when my my kids were were little, and she said, oh, she stood in the doorway, said, oh, what a beautiful sight, and, you know, this one's killing that one, and the baby's got peas all over his face. Say, beautiful sight, beautiful sight, what are you talking about, beautiful sight? Well, I, I, I started learning about what beautiful sights were. Mm. Uh, well, you, you're learning about it and sharing it in your most recent book. It's full of great poems called Nearing 90. Yeah. Are you, do you by any chance have that book near you? 
I have it right in my hot little hand. Yes. Uh, w- would you mind opening that up to your favorite page and uh, sharing with us any of the poems that you want to uh, share with us today? I think I'll read you my last poem, which is called My Legacy, because it's something I thought about. And this has an epigraph, too. Promise me you'll never forget me, because if I thought you would, I'd never leave. That comes from the great philosopher, Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) And here's the poem. Since it's looking as if my legacy isn't shaping up to be peace on earth and universal health care, here's what I'm hoping to be remembered for. Showing up when I say I'm showing up. Sticking with what I've started until it's done. Sending valentines to all the children in our family until they reach the age of 21 and never, ever leaving the house without eyeliner. (laughs) Playing a relentless game of Scrabble, keeping the secrets I promised I would keep. Being able to laugh about the bad things that happened to me, though not before I first whine and weep and rail against my fate and blame my husband. Doing work I'm able to be proud of, making a truly transcendent must of all. Coming to terms with mortality, though, to be perfectly honest, I'm still not feeling all that thrilled about dying. Coming to terms with not feeling thrilled about dying. Watching over the people that I love, grateful they're watching over me as well. Enjoying whatever there is to enjoy until that final time's up closing bell and hoping, just a reminder, that I'll be remembered. Hmm. Judith, as you look forward, not at back at your legacy, but at forward, how many more of these decades book can your uh, loyal readers expect? <laughs> well, my publisher... My publisher told me that he was expecting one on the hundreds because he had recently received a a manuscript from Herman Wook, who was over a hundred and had (laughs) just written another book. So I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring to that, but, um, Listen, I'm I'm not even 90 yet. I'm just a girl of 88, so uh, I have a ways to go. Like I mentioned to you before, you're so you're such a girl at 88. You're so <laughs> vibrant at 88. You're so wise and playful and uh, and engaged. You're just engaged. So, what advice would you offer those of us who are at 89 or 19 or somewhere in between? What advice would you offer for us to celebrate the year that we are currently living? Well, there is a um, there there is a quote at the beginning of this book by the philosopher George Santayana, which I just think is perfect. To be interested in the changing seasons is a happier state of mind than to be hopelessly in love with spring. Mm. Enjoy the season you're in. Get the hell off the cell phone. Take the earbuds out of your ears and. Be where you are right here and right now in that time and to the extent that you can love what you see, love what you see. Mm. Judith, for every guest that we've ever had on our Live Inspired podcast, we've asked them seven questions about enjoying the moments that they have currently found themselves living. So the very first question of the Live Inspired Seven is, Judith Viors, what is the best book? This will be hard for you, but here it is. The best book you've ever read. Oh, very hard to pick. Um, impossible to pick. Um, I, I, I actually, I loved The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, which I read three times. And I loved it because the hero, Hans Kostorp, 
sort of a clunky guy, is trying so hard to understand the world around him, to know the world, to get it. And I loved Hans Kostorp's quest. Judith, what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little girl, maybe eight decades ago, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? <laughs> well, my, my, my leading characteristic, which I'm very proud of as a kid and today, and I want it on my tombstone, yeah. in case you're, is reliable. <laughs> it's not very sexy and it's not very glamorous, but I am... I, I'm a very reliable person. I do what I say I'm going to do. I keep people's secrets. I'm trustworthy. I am reliable. Maybe that sounds boring as hell, but I'm a very <laughs> reliable person. If you're, you can count on me. If your uh, three-story century home caught fire and all living things are out, your animals, your your friends, your family members, everybody's out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what one item would you run back in and grab? I have to tell you, I've been asking myself that question for 20 years. And as soon as I figure out the answer, which I still haven't done, I love the question. I just can't figure out the answer. I'll call you back. I'm in. We'll, we'll play it live <laughs> for the Live Inspired community. We look forward to that one. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want seated right next to you? Oh boy, oh boy! Um, outside of my husband, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I can't count my husband because he would be my number one date even after sixty years. <laughs> he drove you to the bench, so now you can leave, kiss him, and now you're going to walk out there. Who's going to be waiting for you? I wouldn't mind seeing my mother again and asking her all the questions I was too dumb to ask her while she was alive. I wish I'd have a chance to ask her a million questions about her own life mm. and know her a little better. Thank you. What, what's the best advice that she or anyone else ever gave you? I think my, my mother was very big on, my mother, my mother was a marvelous friend to women and she had a very wide circle of friends. And it was, you know, listen, to people's stories and don't don't gossip, don't gossip. Listen, enjoy their joys, sympathize with their sorrows, and be absolutely trustworthy about mm. their secrets. People, any anybody can tell me a secret. I do not tell anybody secrets. Well, I know who I'm calling next time I do something really bad. So uh, keep your phone near you. Judith, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? You're a Rutgers junior, so what would you tell yourself? Don't be so dumb and don't be so self-absorbed. Open your eyes. Look around a little more. Stop worrying about how your hair looks. Judith Viers, it has been said that all great authors and sojourners and poets and leaders and parents and spouses and friends can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Um, <laughs> a line from a, from a poem. And grateful to sat under thunder and rain with you and grateful to for sunlight on the garden. Well, Judith, it has been a blast hanging out under the thunderstorm and under the sunshine with you. 
We love you. We respect you. And we will do this again when you release uh, the decade book on 100. I'm looking forward to it already. I look forward to it too. Thank you. My friends, that is Judith Viorst. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. All right, my friends, I want to take just a moment of your time right now to extend a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say about joining me once a month live? And what would you say if you could do this from the comfort of your own home, your car, or your office? It's not just about joining me, but also about joining hundreds of other like-minded, live-inspired community members. And my friends, that is what I'm extending to you today, the invitation to join us in the Live Inspired in-studio with John O'Leary community. It's where we come together once a month for this exclusive webcast. We take pause. We focus on what is most important to you. We overcome challenges that affect you, and we ensure that you have tools to live into your best life, both personally and professionally. Registration for in-studio only happens a couple times each year, and here's a secret. Come on, lean in toward the speaker. It's happening soon. It's coming this May. Don't miss the opportunity to hold your spot right now. I want you to be one of the very first to know when in-studio registration opens. So go right now and learn a little bit more about InStudio by joining me at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I'm going to say that again, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I'd like you to go to that link right now, learn a little bit more about what InStudio really is, how it's going to elevate your life and why you ought to uh, learn when the waitlist becomes the opportunity to join us live and in living color. So one final time, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I can't wait for you to join me there in this exclusive community. I'm looking forward to doing life together with you.